Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is when people view willpower as limited and easily depleted, they experience improved self-control after eating sugar. But if they view willpower as plentiful, they perform at a high level of self-control with or without eating sugar. So by believing that your willpower is limited, you actually sensitize yourself to physiological cues, and it makes you more dependent on sugar for performance. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Christensen. Alan's out of Phoenix, Arizona, and he's a naturopathic medical doctor who specializes in natural endocrinology with a focus on thyroid disorders. I'm really stoked to have him on here because of the quarter million or so people who listen to a Bulletproof podcast every week, a very substantial percentage of us have thyroid disorders. I've struggled with my own problems with thyroid. And if you want your brain to work well, you want to be thin, you want to have enough energy to get through the day, if your thyroid's broken, you're going to be really not succeeding the way you'd like to succeed. One of the things that stands out about Alan 
is that he founded Integrative Health, which is a group of physicians that really works on reversing complex and chronic diseases. I would call them sort of the biohackers of the physician brigade. <laughs> uh, Alan, welcome You'll be to the glad show. to hear that. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Real happy to be here. Got an awesome show. Thank you. What got my attention about your work was that you wrote The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease and Healing Hashimoto's, a savvy mm -hmm. patient's guide. Now, a lot of people listening probably think Hashimoto's is a form of sushi, and it actually sounds like that. <laughs> it is a condition where your immune system attacks your thyroid, and it's surprisingly common, and it's linked to gluten, as longtime listeners will have heard from other guests uh, like Dr. Tom O'Brien and uh, actually several other people. So Hashimoto's and general thyroid health should be of importance to every single person listening to this because when your thyroid is optimized, it's like having a spark plug that works well in your car. If it doesn't work well, the, the works get gummed up and you just don't perform the way you should. It doesn't matter how well you've got the polish and wax in place if the spark plugs aren't connected. <laughs> exactly. Now, you're also, you, you're kind of a weird, a weird dude. Like you're... <laughs> Your competitive mountain road coming unicycler. from bulletproof executive being called weird. This could not be cooler. That's like the highest honor. <laughs> a mountain unicycler. I've seen guys like you three times, always wearing big shin guards. So, yeah. um, you know that is the most unusual sport of anyone who's been on the podcast for sure. <laughs> and uh, you also, it sounds like you had some seizures when you were a kid. How did you cure them with diet? You know, it was pretty wild. It turned out that foods were big triggers. It was somehow my whole histamine threshold, the whole level of allergens would initiate a seizure. And my parents knew about some obvious external airborne triggers they would identify, uh, things like horses, for example. But what wasn't apparent early on is that the foods I was consuming would make me more or less responsive to those. And toying around with just what affected me in the short term really shifted how I responded to those airborne triggers. You know, and the medications just caused side effects. They didn't particularly help all that much, but dietary change made such a big difference. I only wish when I was a kid that we had known about this kind of thing because I had you know, mold allergies. I had lots of food triggers. And it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I figured this out. And you know, your wow. brain forms differently if you're living in, in an area, you know, you're eating high histamine foods and you have all these allergies. So you're, you're lucky you figured it out. But how did you do that when you were, you were young? Like how old were you when you learned that food did this? It was about like four or five. Um, so the weird, the weird part was that I had seizures. I had like zero motor skills. That's why I do things like ride mountain unicycle. Uh, okay. <laughs> my other big love is rock climbing, you know, and just being able to really move physically, have my, my body respond well, it's just such a, such a cool high because for so long I was so far at the opposite end of that spectrum. But the weird part was that it, it worked well in other ways. I, I started reading very early on in life. I got through an encyclopedia set before kindergarten. And whenever I was up against something that wasn't working well, I just threw a huge pile of books at it and eventually, eventually made some sense out of it. You know, things, things would improve. <laughs> you know, if, uh, uh, if you weren't so much better looking than me, I'd say we must be long lost <laughs> twins, right? Be because, you know, same thing. I learned to read at 18 months and yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. You, you get the data and lack of motor skills. You know, I, I, I'm still repatterning some of my you know infant movement reflexes uh, because when you spend all your time reading instead of moving, funny what your nervous system optimizes for. 
right? <laughs> uh, that, that's pretty cool. I did not know that about you. And so you're lucky you did this at four. And I'll tell you, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and absolutely food impacts how they behave. And I've learned out of self-defense, don't feed garbage or trigger foods to your kids because they'll misbehave and you just don't need that in your life. You know, a bunch of kids who want to respond but can't respond because their brains are basically misfiring. Yeah. So, so you're fortunate your parents figured that out. And then, you know, if we'll fast forward a bit. You become a competitive mountain unicyclist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, can you juggle bananas while you do it too? I just, I, just... <laughs> I can't juggle, unfortunately. I can, I can ride pretty tough terrain, but I can't juggle even standing on my own two feet. So <laughs> I, I haven't learned either, but it's one of the things on my list for hacking the brain to just, you know, get your uh, peripheral vision up and running. So um, <laughs> next time we talk in a year from now on the podcast, maybe we can both be juggling bananas. I, <laughs> It'll be a goal. Uh, so let's talk some more about thyroid, though. Why did you, or why do you think we're idiots about our thyroid? Like, like, why do people not know about this really important thing? You know, it's such a huge factor, and medicine is just so so stuck and not really progressed for decades and decades and decades. My bias, as far as why that's the case, is just that progression occurs from medications and reimbursable treatments. You know, and. The medications we're using have been around 100 years, and there's no high-end reimbursable procedures for doctors to chase. So they're not highly incentivized to take it more seriously and do a better job with it. And it's affecting so many people, and the numbers are increasing. Yeah, it's just huge. It, I'm seeing the same thing. Doctors don't quite understand thyroid. I will say the average doctor. I know lots of guys who do integrative and functional medicine who really get it. But why is the knowledge you have not kind of permeated the mainstream medical side of things? Because it's relatively simple to fix a thyroid. You know, it's not too tough when you get it. And I'm trying very hard to get the message out better and better. I'm actually off to Mexico City Saturday to lecture to another group of doctors. I teach internationally. My bias, though, is that the alternative world doesn't quite get it either. You know, my, my simplification of it is that the conventional world really underdiagnoses and really undertreats. And the alternative world, my bias is that they probably overdiagnose and overtreat. And there's a certain amount of finesse to it. There's a lot of elements to proper disease management. And I think that the, the alternative world, the integrative world is probably closer, but there's some good elements in the conventional world that should be regarded and should be acted on. So I'm trying to really tie the better elements of both of those together. So alternative doctors tend to overdiagnose thyroid conditions. Regular doctors tend to underdiagnose it. How would one of our listeners who you know maybe is feeling a little tired in the afternoon, a little sluggish, immune problems, some brain fog and fatigue they're not used to, dry skin, all the stuff that that I'm guessing you would look for, you know, the symptoms of this. How would they know? Like, how do you find a doctor who's not going to, oh, everything is thyroid or nothing is thyroid? Like, what, <laughs> what's the, what do I do as just an, a consumer of medical care? You know, we've got a list that we put together of doctors that I've trained. A general thing to think about, you mentioned some really important symptoms. And I've made a distinction between possible thyroid symptoms and probable thyroid symptoms. You know, because thyroid hormones literally impact every cell in the body, any symptom could be related but statistically, some are more probable than others. There was a large study done in 2000 called the Colorado Thyroid Prevalence Study, and they screened about 25,000 people in terms of blood levels, but also pretty elaborate questionnaires. And it was cool because they did some nice number crunching on the symptoms, and they saw that some were more highly correlated. You mentioned about 
the dry skin. The, uh, some other big ones were things you might think of like the cold intolerance, uh, hoarseness, difficulty swallowing, changes in energy level. Kind of a nuanced thing about the symptoms is that they don't occur in a large number in most cases. You know, the greatest typical number is between about one and four, with two being a real strong median. So someone rarely has a high number of symptoms. Another kind of nuanced take on that is these are not really long-standing symptoms. These are things that changed at some specific point in time. So if someone has this set of two, three, four suspicious symptoms and they shifted you know, six months ago or something, that's that much more relevant. And then also family history is a factor. Thyroid disease, the big part that's missed in the alternative world is the structural aspect. You know, it's caused by and large, as you mentioned, by Hashimoto's and immune response. And that first changes the structure of the gland. So part of the diagnosis comes about by evaluating that by ultrasound. And the other aspect that's important is thyroid cancer is the fastest increasing type of cancer in North America. And everyone who has thyroid disease it's recommended they have a baseline thyroid ultrasound and have those tracked at regular intervals. So that's a big part that often gets ignored and it's super critical. Who do you go to see for a thyroid ultrasound? Is it a specialist or a family practitioner? Uh, neither. The best option per the American Thyroid Association recommendation would be a medical imaging center. And those are centers that any doctor can order imaging studies through. They tend to have the greatest volume. They do the highest number of these procedures. They have the latest equipment, and they can get the most exacting in terms of quantifying any structural abnormalities. But yeah, if someone's not had one, it's a smart thing to get a baseline. About 10 plus years ago, actually closer to 15 years ago, I was really into acyl sulfame potassium, or ACE-K, uh -huh. the artificial sweetener. And I developed benign nodules on my thyroid, which are okay. a little known side effect of that kind of sweetener. Like It tastes just like sugar. It's kind of amazing. It just has this little thyroid effect. But they diagnosed <laughs> those just with a straight palpation. And mm -hmm. I have no idea how the person who did that knew that they were benign versus you know big, ugly, meaty cancers. That's but, not a distinction you can make by palpation. So it was kind of someone being a little cavalier with, uh, with risk at that point. And if I had done an ultrasound imaging of that, it would have been uh, more descriptive. You would have been able to see if it had the tendrils that made it more likely to be malignant or something. For sure. There's certain characteristics such as the size, the calcification, the vascularity. But palpation, the best examiners, if you take a room of people that all has nodules of five millimeters or less, the best examiners will find them about 10% of the time. Wow. And yeah, skilled ultrasonographers will pick those up much more consistently. So I do poke around on thyroids, but I still always send out for ultrasounds for more definitive evaluation of that. And that's a critical wow. part of care afterwards too. You know, I have done an amazing amount of quantification with radioactive dyes and God knows what else, but uh, I've never had an ultrasound of my thyroid. So next time I go in, I'm going to get one. So thank you get for one that done. already, Alan. <laughs> Well, and the cool thing, too, is that they're not radioactive. There's no real negative effects from that. They're brain non-invasive, but they're okay. real useful data. Okay, is that, but that's not as important as like a thyroid hormone panel, which is pretty doable. Do you recommend like the blood side or the, just the physical, how's it look side? Not, which in, is not in either or. They're, okay. they're both critical aspects. You know, one evaluates the structure and one evaluates the function. Okay. And you honestly don't know what good function looks like without knowing the structure. You know, when there's structural abnormalities, there's different benchmarks and different guidelines for the functional markers. So they really both need to be looked at to make a good sense of 
whether or not someone is having symptoms related to thyroid disease, but also someone being on treatment if they're at the levels that are the most effective for them and most conducive to good health. Okay. What happens, uh, you know, if your thyroid's out, what's the first thing that the average patient sees? I know that there's a whole variety of everything could be thyroid. You know, I sprained my eyelash, it was my thyroid. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, what, what's the most obvious thing that the largest statistical percentage of people are going to feel? Or maybe what are the top three even? So if someone's listening to this on their drive home and they go, my God, something's changed. You know, what, what, what are the things they ought to be looking for? Because I, I think some people know if they're you know, into biohacking and health, but there's a lot of people who just have this going on right now and you know, their pants don't fit anymore and, and they don't know yeah. it. So what are the signs? Things not responding the way they used to. And that would include uh, weight in response to activity and diet. That would include mood and energy in response to sleep and rest and activity levels. And then also connective tissues, you know, not repairing as well as you would expect based upon otherwise health and, and nutritional status. So, yeah, some shift in those big areas are the first large suspicions. You know, one more perspective on this. There's so much thought into, you know, hormonal optimization, hacking, however we want to think about it. And a point I like to draw to people's attention is that there's real different realms that occur of our endocrinology not being optimal. You know, we've got dysfunction due to disease. We have alterations in hormone output due to more dysfunction, more pure, pure lifestyle factors, chronic stressors. Then we have dysfunction more so from aging. You know, our, our genes are incentivized for us to be good baby makers, but not great at longevity. Yes. <laughs> so those are all three very different realms. And the methodology of understanding and treatment is kind of a different flavor for each of those realms. You know, so commonly people think about thyroid disease as purely being a matter of dysfunction. And it's, it's really more of a disease state. It's quite distinct from adrenal dysfunction or alterations in gonadal output from aging. So that's a way in which it requires a whole distinct set of understanding. Got it. So for people listening, that is the most important advice of all, and it may go beyond thyroid. If everything worked for a while and then it stopped working, either you're doing something different that you're unaware of, the mm -hmm. environment around you changed, or you changed. It's one of those three things. And thyroid is one of those simple things that's relatively common that changes about you, about your actual body. Um, we'll call it about your meat. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, and a tough part too is that you know the common medical intervention is just a quick screen of a very cursory marker looked at at a very broad average. You know, I always tell patients that there's normal ranges and there's optimal ranges, and there's such a big distinction. You know, if you wanted to know, we've got the Phoenix Suns here in our area, and I yep. tell people that if you wanted to know how tall the average man was, you wouldn't go to the Suns locker room with the tape measure. <laughs> you know, you'd get a very meaningful number for that population, but it wouldn't be that applicable to other populations. And the problem with certain thyroid tests is that their, their normal range is an average range, and that's an average of the population getting the test done. And those are the people that have the most disruptive thyroid levels that are checked the most frequently. So that's an area to where screening often does miss it when it's at earlier stages. That is a really important point. In almost all of the labs that I work with, unless there are specific anti-aging panels, the company's norms are so far off because yeah. of the standard American diet 
And also this whole curve for aging, I don't want to be old. I would like my <laughs> hormone levels to be where they were when I was 30. I don't care if I'm 80. I want 30-year-old testosterone. There's really right. good and pleasurable reasons to have functioning testosterone, not to mention you're a nicer person when your testosterone is adequate. Same thing goes with thyroid hormone. Now, there's a lot of focus on, at least in my mind, on prevention because I, I dug myself out of a hole. It sounds like you did too. You, know, you started out with sensitivities. If people could do one thing to prevent themselves from having thyroid dysfunction, what would you recommend? Uh, choose your parents carefully and choose the <laughs> era in which you're born. <laughs> I love that things. answer. All right, let me work on that. Any other ideas? I'm sorry. You know, it's something to where it's caused by interplay between genes, the diet, the immune system. One small, simple step, eat a Brazil nut every day. You know, be adequate on selenium status. That goes a long ways towards really helping your body utilize the nutrients needed for forming hormone. It also goes a long ways towards optimizing your detox pathways to lowering the chance of having waste build up in the thyroid. You know, we get so much stuff we're exposed to, and the thyroid has a very unique relationship with a single mineral being iodine. And it needs so much of it so badly that it's evolved this very powerful pump to concentrate it like 50 to 100 fold over the blood levels. And that's, that's cool so far, but the problem is that so many chemicals have some vague similarity to iodine. They also get concentrated that badly inside the thyroid. So a big variable is just environmental stress and environmental toxins. Did, did I just hear you say fluoride is bad for you in there? <laughs> you could certainly infer that fluoride <laughs> does get concentrated along with iodine. <laughs> yeah, you heard me say that. <laughs> and they're, on the, they're on the same column in the periodic table. <laughs> they are indeed, as well as the bromide that goes in our bread, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I love hearing you say that because there's a lot of controversy around fluoride. And, and because you're a thyroid expert, like you know what fluoride does to a thyroid gland. You know, fluoride had huge medical use for blocking overactive thyroid for decades. That was the treatment of choice. You know, it's a very straightforward thing that it's an effective strategy to shut down the gland when it's overactive. It's probably a little less toxic than some of the modern drugs are, but its role on suppressing thyroid activity could not be better documented. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still am amazed that anyone with a scientific background will argue that putting a thyroid suppressing drug in water to prevent a relatively benign thing like cavities. Cavities suck, but low thyroid sucks a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just don't get so that. But cancer and all the rest of the problems. And yeah. <laughs> all right. So if iodine is a key thing, you mentioned something though, the selenium in Brazil nuts. Now mm -hmm. you and, and Tim Ferriss, who's another guy whose who's work I, I admire, um, are Brazil nut fans. <laughs> now, I've looked at Brazil nuts, and I've looked at the incidence of mycotoxins or mold toxins in Brazil nuts. It is hard to find a not moldy Brazil nut. Mm. And there is a well-documented cross-reactivity between gluten and the types of molds that grow on nuts and corn, basically members of the Aspergillus and Penicillium family. I would be willing to bet that a certain percentage of Hashimoto's is not necessarily from gluten specifically, but from cross, but from things that cross react with gluten. And there's also you documented have, evidence. You know that, how many studies are done correlating Hashimoto's and gluten? Uh, no. <laughs> if you go to PubMed and you type in you broader terms, type in thyroid 
type in gluten and you'll find three studies. Mm -hmm. And there are studies showing that celiac disease is statistically slightly more probable in the population with thyroid disease than it is in other populations. That's, that's the end of the studies. Interesting. So do you, do you, do you believe the gluten Hashimoto's connection? I don't connection? encourage any of my patients to live on Wonder Bread. Okay. <laughs> but I do encourage them to really focus their efforts on what's going to be the biggest needle movers for them. And a huge percent of people have celiac, a big percent yeah. have gluten intolerance, and that's a very big health issue. But the data on those reactions actually causing thyroid disease, pretty far down the pecking order of hypothetical versus documented. Wow. <laughs> Have you reversed Hashimoto's entirely in patients? Sure. There are those to where it's earlier in the process. There's not significant structural alterations. They've had minimal change in uh, expression of related hormone function. And yeah, that happens. My big focus is always really helping people identify what their optimal health looks like and help them get yeah. back to that. It's not really focusing on what pills you take to get there, but really just getting there. You know, I, I treat diabetes, and so often people are on four or five oral medications and they're doing horribly. And in many cases, a short course of insulin can really help them move back towards health. And people are often much very fixated on not wanting a certain kind of treatment. And I think it's not really about the kind of treatment, it's about the goal and the end, the, end, the outcome. And so where, where can you get, not really... How are you going to get there? Don't be attached to that. You know, use whatever is most logical yeah. and most effective and simple. Do what works. Do what you can feel. And, yeah. and don't do what's supposed to work but doesn't work. God, if only I'd yeah, known so, that when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, so often people will come in and they'll say, hey, I've had thyroid disease for a long time. Can I not be on medicine? I'm like, well, I can help you get healthy. I can help you get ridiculously healthy. And there are myriads of complicated steps you could do that could help your gland output a bit if it's making a lot of hormone. If it's not making much at all and it hasn't for some time, you know, that's not the best expenditure of your energy in all honesty. So I, I ended up reversing my Hashimoto's. I tested positive for the antibodies. I became militant about avoiding gluten and I'm already militant about avoiding mold toxins. But so that, by reversing, you mean your antibodies went negative? Yeah, I have no more antibodies. Okay. So, I mean, I, I haven't done a structural analysis the way you're talking about, so I'll go get that done and see if anything else comes out from that. Antibodies, antibodies to me are kind of like psychics. If they, if they say things that I like and make sense, I believe in them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, medical tests, they all have certain rates of false positives and false negatives. The rate of false negatives for thyroid antibodies is upwards of 40%. The wow. rate of false positives is below about 2 or 3%. So they, they are inherently variable for reasons that are not always meaningful. So in many cases, if you check them dozens of times over a given individual, they'll, they'll come and go, they'll ebb and flow, and, and it takes a lot of reading and a lot of time and a lot of people to see big meaningful trends for that. So yes, yeah, still, still cool. watch out for your structure for sure. And I will actually retest that. It's, it's I, kind of a fun thing, but... It's a very different kind of diagnosis. You know, so many diagnoses we're used to are based upon a simple marker or upon a constellation of patterns. Hashimoto's is not like that. It's a histologic diagnosis. And what that means is the only rule out for Hashimoto's is the complete removal of a gland and the microscopic analysis of every nook and cranny of it. So there's a lot of rule ins, but there's not really practical, simple rule outs for it. Uh, yeah, that would be sort of a painful diagnosis. So. <laughs> Just section your thyroid, no problem. Put it back when you're done. Uh, well, before we start uh, vivisecting our own thyroids, uh, 
One of the things I run into, I, I write a lot about, actually almost everything is about energy and like mental energy and physical energy. And magically, when you get your energy right, you optimize your weight pretty pretty magically, as I'm guessing you've seen with your, your patient population. What about women though? Because women have different thyroid issues than men and women have a harder time losing weight in general. Um, even on you know Bulletproof Coffee, sometimes we have to tweak the recipe for women, not always. But what's the thyroid differentiators between women and men? Yeah, that's that's an awesome question. And my population of patients is so heavily female. You know, the data suggests that as common as thyroid is, there's probably about an eight to one female to male predominance. And the reasons for that are the same reasons that women have more autoimmune disease in general. A um, couple of theories, there's the chimerism model where we think that some some cells left over from fetal development may alter the immune response. There's also a distinct immune function that women have that allows them to host a foreign, a foreign body ultimately and not respond to it. And that makes them more apt to attack some of their own tissues. There's also arguments that just lower androgen levels can be part of that equation too. But for sure, they're much more apt to develop thyroid disease. And because of that, they're much more apt to have the weight be a struggle for them. You know, the whole cyclical process of estradiol progesterone that by itself is very conducive to maintaining some, some subcutaneous fat, maintaining a lower bowel turnover rate, higher caloric absorption pattern for better stability of a baby. So they're, they're set up to carry more than one person, and that makes them easier to have their immune system attack themselves, but also harder to really let go of any stored tissues. So women should be more concerned about the incidence of thyroid problems than men should be on average. It's more common among them, yeah. Although if you're a man in a relationship with a woman, you might want to care a lot about this. <laughs> uh, you know, a funny thing with family history, when there's, when there's a male relative in the family, because it is rarer in males, that makes it much more likely for anyone of any gender to have thyroid disease. Yeah, female relatives raise the risk, but male relatives raise the risk exponentially greater. Oh, that's interesting because they're less likely to have it. Correct. I can tell you that after my wife, who's a Karolinska trained physician, by the way, um, okay. she's co-author of the Better Baby book, which is our book about uh, epigenetics and what you can do to your environment and your food to have better genes and healthier thyroid in your kids. Um, awesome. So during after our first pregnancy, she had thyroid issues. And to me, it was blindingly obvious because she'd sleep 12 hours and say, I'm so tired, I'm so tired, even after the first few months when all babies make you everyone tired. Uh, and literally for about 18 months, I, I would just say, your thyroid's out, your thyroid's out. And, and when she finally went in, um, she was a wreck, to be honest. And there was barely detectable thyroid hormone. It, it was scraping the bottom of the barrel. Wow. And so when she went on it, it was like, you know, it, it turned the lights back on. It was a huge difference. But if a person in your life, whether it's a husband or a wife, uh, has a thyroid condition, it will seriously affect the relationship uh, because one person, like if your spark plugs aren't working, you don't have the energy to go out and have fun on Friday night. You just want to sleep. Yeah. Do you see that in your practice where you know people, they turn their thyroids back on and their relationships improve and you know their jobs improve and things like that? Oh, completely. Yeah, your life is so much better. It always blows me away how much of our... You know, we've got this mystical experience of consciousness, of interfacing with the world in our head somewhere, and it always blows me away that that seems so etheric, but yet 
the most subtle microscopic chemical manipulations can have the most profound impact upon that experience. I mean, isn't that just a wild idea? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I mean, heck, you can go uh, go to vanishingly small amounts of, of some of the you know illegal hallucinogen sorts of things. Sure. All the way up to just like 100 milligrams of caffeine in a cup of coffee. Sure. <laughs> it, it changes everything. But the thyroid, we're measuring this in micrograms for, for the thyroid hormones. So this is potent stuff. Yeah. You know, I often give people the idea that if you imagine, you know, looking at a little grain of grain of salt in the palm of your hand, about a tenth of that represents the mass of thyroid hormone your body makes per day. And that tenth of a grain of salt is distributed in all of your tissues. If that were absent, maybe two to three weeks you could survive before you'd go into a coma from just fluid pressure on your brain. Wow. And if that were a full grain of salt, maybe several more weeks before your heart would give out from overstimulation. So yeah, the most subtle changes in that microscopic compound just have huge impacts upon all aspects of your chemistry and physiology. Now, is there a, a circadian rhythm to thyroid or, or a monthly rhythm? There is a circadian rhythm. Now, that has a bit of a mirror effect upon cortisol metabolism. Our biggest output is going to be normally between about two to four in the morning. That's when we get the TSH surge, and the biggest release of T4. The conversion and uptake of hormone goes on in a few other cycles throughout the day. Now, there's not a monthly rhythm for what the thyroid does, but there's a lot of ways in which, in a woman's body, there's interactions between the monthly rhythms of estradiol and progesterone and thyroid hormone when a woman's menstruating. You know, as a generalization, estrogen heightens a compound called thyroid binding globulin, and that lowers the efficacy of thyroid. So right before ovulation and about a week before menstruation, there's a point at which it's normal to have more impairment of thyroid uptake because of that increase in estradiol. And there are also some uh, annual rhythms that go on relative to temperature change and seasonal fluctuations of daylight and darkness that are relevant. Oh, now we're going to talk about some cool biohacking things. <laughs> All right. I'm known to, when I'm not on airplanes too much, uh, to sit in ice baths and do cold <laughs> thermogenesis. Have, have you done a, a whole body cryotherapy yet? Uh, I haven't done, done it with the, like the liquid nitrogen sort of thing, that one. When you're in Phoenix, I've got a unit. We're, oh, I'm so there. You can, you can count on it. Next time I go out there for 40 years of Zen, uh, I'm, I'm in. I've been wanting to try that forever. And I have the poor man's. I have an agricultural stock tank and I put, you know, 40 pounds of ice and I sit there and shiver for a little while. But Dr. Yamaguchi was a Japanese rheumatologist. And in the early 70s, he was intrigued about the benefits of cold therapy. And he wanted to hack that. He wanted to manipulate it and heighten it in some way. And he kept playing with all these methods. And he realized that the benefit correlated with thermoreceptors, little nerves yes. just below the skin surface that respond to temperature. And he found that the colder he could get them and the more quickly he could get them cold, the greater was the neurologic response. The benefit of cold is not really chilling. It's the neurologic shock and it's the after yeah. effect that occurs. And so what he found was that the maximum benefit of cold water, normally your thermoreceptors are about 90 Fahrenheit, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you're in an ice tub for about 18 minutes, you can get them down to 59 Fahrenheit. But he showed that with air super chilled to minus 250 Fahrenheit, liquid nitrogen, you could bring them down to about 35 to 40 Fahrenheit within 30 seconds. <laughs> that is so cool. I, yeah. I target 45, but I'm sitting in ice water for you know a good 20 minutes, and it's you know ice floating around, and sometimes <laughs> I can't get below 50. Yeah. Uh, so all right, now I'm intrigued. 
you have one of these units, of course, you have an anti-aging practice, not just thyroid. Um, what does it do to thyroid hormone when people expose their skin to these crazy cold temperatures? Well, it helps. You know, and one of the big elements we have that affects our, our weight and our thyroid output is our lack of uh, thermal variation. You know, for a long time, we got cold at night. <laughs> yeah. Now we don't get cold much, if ever, anymore. So we have less brown fat. We have less capacity to modulate our secretion of hormones to elevate our beta oxidation in response to thermogenesis just because it's not challenged as much. So yeah, thermal challenges are wonderful. They're, they're great. The cool thing about the cryotherapy is that the effect is powerful, but the actual duration is very brief. You know, it's only three minutes, and so it's much more tolerable. But it's a greater effect than other therapies because it's a quicker drop of those thermoreceptors. It's a more dramatic, quick plunge that they face. So your body goes into this very powerful, useful shock response. It stimulates metabolism and tissue repair. So how much does it cost to buy one of those nitrogen uh, cryotherapy. Sixty to eighty thousand for, ah. for the cheapers. <laughs> you know, I, I think I want a Tesla before that, but I'm not buying either <laughs> one. So darn it, <laughs> I, want, I want one of those sitting behind me in my biohacking lab here. But uh, I'll, I'll have to wait. That's why I one my clinic so I can have personal access to it. <laughs> uh, I uh, I respect that very much. Uh, what about the glove? They, they have those gloves you put your hand in that use a vacuum and circulating cold water to drop your body temperature. It, it's not thermal receptors on the skin, but like, is there a hack for the rest of us so we can we can afford to do this, or do we all have to come and visit you and hang out in your cool cryotherapy chamber? I'm, you know, I'm going to do it. With, what you're doing with ice is probably the next best thing. You know, other cool. therapies, the benefit is relative to just how much of the body mass is chilled and how abruptly. So the more mass you chill, the quicker. You know, if you're going from like a sauna to a cold plunge, that can be a powerful thing. The funny thing about cold therapies, though, is that you're inducing a stress effect. And so like, like other stress responses, the ideal response, like exercise, would be a challenging stress, but one that induces a heightened recovery response. You wouldn't want an overwhelming stress. You, know, you wouldn't just take a new runner and put a gun to their head and make them run a marathon. That wouldn't make them faster. That would just make them sick and sore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so same thing with any kind of a stress-induced response. It should be re relative to the person's capacity to compensate and, and respond to it well. In fact, a warning is due here. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're thinking you'll go sit for 20 minutes in a <laughs> bath full of ice. That's pretty advanced stuff, Dave. <laughs> like seriously, listen to these words. Read the blog first uh, because I got first degree ice burns over 15% of my body doing this wrong. It took me weeks to recover from that. And oh. uh, you need to soak your face in ice water every night for a couple minutes to get your vagal nerve used to this. So don't mess around. If you do decide to do it, it is an amazing thing. But honestly, if you can get access to a cryotherapy three-minute treatment <laughs> versus kind of suffering for five minutes before you kind of bliss out in the cold, I recommend that. So <laughs> uh, I didn't even think we'd talk about this. Now, do you, what do you see? Does, you know, T3, T4? By the way, we haven't even talked about what T3 and T4 and TSH are. Um, so we should talk about what those are. And I want to know what does cold do for, for your thyroid and for inflammation in general? What is the thyroid relationship? So what are these things? All the T numbers are basically iodine atoms. You know, the whole thing about forming thyroid hormone is a matter of packaging iodine onto a tyrosine-like molecule. You know, you're packing more and more iodine onto this. And each iodine gets a new number. So there's T2, there's T3, there's T4. T2 and T3 are the most biologically active by far. You know, our gland makes T4. I heard a professor say this brilliantly. The reason we make an inactive hormone is the same reason that Campbell's makes their soup in cans. <laughs> because if they made it in a big hot vat, 
it wouldn't be easy to transport. You know? <laughs> so that's they make hilarious. it cold and they make it canned. And that's how we make an inactive hormone. We send it out that way and we can pop it open and heat it up when and where we need to. The body has more peripheral control over that. TSH, that's the main upstream control of the brain telling the thyroid to work. You know, the thyroid is one of many lazy glands that goofs off if it's not being yelled at. So it only makes hormone in response to thyroid-stimulating hormone. And that's the main upstream control. Downstream, there's a big long list of ways in which the body can change how those hormones are used, how they're bound up, how they're crossing the cell membranes. So there's many levels of upstream and downstream control. But yeah, TSH, T3, T4, they're the big numbers that come up with thyroid testing. Now, most of the time when I get a, a new you know, performance consulting client, and if they've even had a thyroid panel, it's just TSH because it's quick and dirty. How predictive is just a TSH level without looking at T3, T2, T4, reverse T3, uh, anti-thyroid binding globulins, all those things? Um, those are all very relevant markers you mentioned. So the TSH alone, we think about the, again, the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value. So the positive value of a very abnormal TSH is accurate. It's very meaningful. If your TSH is screwed up, there's clearly a problem. The negative predictive value of a normal TSH is not very high. You know, it's very probable to have thyroid dysfunction for some length of time before the TSH ever moves outside of its range or substantially at all. So that means that if you have regular TSH, it doesn't mean that you're free of thyroid problems. It just means you don't have like the most FUBAR thyroid possible. That's a perfect way of putting it. <laughs> all right, cool. <laughs> uh, so... This is one reason that when people are dealing with any sort of lack of energy or focus uh, that I recommend that they talk with their practitioner about getting an advanced thyroid panel that includes all of the things so you can see whether T4 is turning into T3 and all of that. Mm -hmm. And what's the most common, um, the most common problem that you see uh, when, you get, when you have the full data and you can see T4, T3, T2, and TSH? Is there one that stands out that's, that's more common than others? Well, the most common disease issue is Hashimoto's. And the funny thing is that this is something else I try so hard to educate doctors about because there's really a lack of understanding. The free hormones, the T3 and T4, their relationship is very nonlinear with the TSH. You know, in many cases, they're looked at as if they're independent issues. And very often doctors will see suboptimal or abnormal levels of T3 and T4, and they'll do types of dosing with those hormones to compensate for the levels. And it's really just not how the system works. You know, those are much more reflective of peripheral thyroid conversion and metabolism than they are of central thyroid regulation. So if you manipulate those independently, you won't see a very linear response in, in the other markers. So there's a point at where at the greatest level of extremes, at the greatest level of excess, the TSH being a backwards marker, it goes low and eventually those hormones do go high. That's after the body has completely exhausted all of its mechanisms of blocking, buffering, negating thyroid to protect itself. And at the opposite end, it's also true. At the greatest deficiency, eventually those hormones get low. But between those two states, they're not linear relationships. So when, they, when those free hormones are abnormal relative to the TSH, that's, that's different. And that's more a matter of interpreting the downstream peripheral regulation than it is trying to change central control or global thyroid hormone levels. 
That was a mouthful. I think I need to parse that <laughs> sentence, and usually I'm pretty good at these. So this is one reason why you should work with a practitioner uh, in order to look at, at these numbers if anything has changed the way you didn't want it to. Yeah. Uh, now, as a biohacker, I know that when you're injured, you need a little bit more thyroid hormone. When you're stressed, you just naturally generate a little more thyroid. And I've been known to take you know, 2.5 to 5 milligrams of extra cortisol when I'm getting sick and magically I don't get sick. I've also been known to take about 1 milligram of time-release T3 on days when I'm starting to get sick. I assume you mean a microgram? Uh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be micrograms. I said milligram, yeah. A slight difference there. A few zeros. Life or death difference uh, in exactly. my world. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it is. And so uh, essentially, I'll take a, a small fraction of a time release T3 compounded uh, capsule. Is this something that only a crazy biohacker would do? Or is this something that's probably safe and may keep me from getting sick? Boy, boy short answer, diplomatic answer. I'm trying really hard in here. <laughs> you don't have to be diplomatic. You can tell me that it's a really bad idea and I might even stop doing it. No, but I, I I've noticed it's different. I don't even use compounded thyroid hormones. You know, the, the problem there is that the level of, of quality control. I, I have friends that manufacture thyroid medications. They, they, were, they, had, they actually chief science officer at one of the big companies, a close friend of mine. And he's confided in me that the whole quality control process from raw material to final product, about 95% of products don't reach the market when they're assayed pre-production or post-production because of just variability in output. And that's with the very best exacting machinery. So compounding... Yeah. It means that somebody mixed it up by hand, and there was never quality control processes along the way. So what? What? Uh, and I'll actually double check with uh, the guy I work with is a pretty high end uh, pharmacist, but I believe um, there's a quality control process on the raw material. They're just putting it in a uh, in a different dose because I right. don't want to so take post, a big dose. Post production, there's not a quality control process to see if the mixing was adequate. Yeah, correct. Right, and I'm I'm personally aware of at least eight cases of death or near death because of that exact problem. Whoa. When I manage thyroid disease, the, the targeting of the blood levels is so exacting. It's like down to a tenth of a unit to get someone just perfect. And I just can't achieve that with medication that's not consistent. So I'm, I'm just a nut about which brands, you know, which products yeah. and everything. And I, I left compounded medicine behind so long ago for that reason. Wow. Every pharmacist I've talked to claims to have the secret sauce methodology but I've never really had a good explanation on how that how that actually happens. It's pretty compounding is great for milligrams, but micrograms, it's just too big of a fudge factor. And the it, difference because is of so the mixing problem. Yeah. Wow. So I, I'm going to have some hard questions for my my pharmacist next time, which is <laughs> which is pretty cool. Very specific plug here for personal use. Um, WP Thyroid. Okay. That is that is like the best brand in terms of standardization. No gluten. No binders. No fillers. The only inactive ingredients are medium chain triglyceride from coconut and inulin from chicory root. Besides that, it's only natural desiccated thyroid powder. It's standardized to less than one percent variance for T3 and T4, and that's that's the brand that I really stick with. All right, I will put a link to that in the podcast notes so that people who want to find it can check it out. Yeah, um, and there's conversion charts. You can easily work to a dosage to that from any other kind of medication, you know, synthroid alone or a compounded medicine or a combination. Okay. Uh, it, it's interesting. About about 10 years ago, I had a chance to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with a former head of the FDA. 
and it was at a, an investment meeting and I was there representing a venture capital firm and I was the only, you know, vitamin anti-aging wacko in the crowd. The rest of them you know, wanted to sell drugs and medical devices. So I, oh. I kind of raised my hand and said, so why are you hostile to innovation in the supplement business? Because we have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in supplements. You know, and I, I kind of, you know, read him the riot act in the nicest possible <laughs> way in a room of 20 people, right? And, uh, and after awesome. Afterwards, we were having uh, having a drink, actually, and I said, you know, I, I hope you don't think I was, you know, putting on the spot or being rude. And, and he's like, compared to a congressional testimony, that was nothing. <laughs> and, and he did explain exactly this thing about, at the time, it was Armour Thyroid. And he said, look, there are serious quality control issues. And this was a decade ago. And for him, it had been like one of his personal crusades in the FDA in order to focus that and to actually take some things off the market that did have quality control issues. So it's interesting that it's apparently still going on. And, and this is something I was entirely unaware of. Uh, well, it's still so. going on and it's, it's per guidelines. The guidelines allow for up to a 20% variation for the natural desiccated thyroid products. And they allow for more than a 5% variation batch to batch on the synthetics. So those are both really unacceptable to me. And, wow. and the compounding, again, there's really no standardization for post-production. This is uh, this is fascinating stuff. It's probably getting pretty detailed for for some of you out there. the The takeaway from this is that if you have symptoms that match a low thyroid, things have changed. They aren't as easy as they used to have been. Uh, you do want to get a full thyroid panel, not just a TSH. Yeah. And this is a relatively simple piece of advice. You want to work with an with a professional, and if they're writing just a journal script for a generic thyroid hormone. I can personally testify there's a difference between generic and a name brand uh, sure. in terms of efficacy. And uh, it sounds like uh, I'm not opposed to compounding. I know some wonderful compounders who, who you know, compounding pharmacies who mix things I cannot buy anywhere else, you know, preservative free, nice statin or whatever, whatever the thing is. So I, I think there's definitely a role for compounding. And mm -hmm. uh, some of the more innovative people are compounders in, in my experience. But it sounds like for microgram dosing of thyroid, uh, your arguments are pretty convincing there. So, and I love compounding too for all the same reasons you do. Awesome. So yeah, th th there's already enough of an industry attack on compounding pharmacies. I, I would not <laughs> contribute to that. I would simply say right. your advice to buy good quality, standardized, uh, you know, industrial grade, whatever you want to call it, uh, thyroid <laughs> hormone from WP Thyroid. Wow. Okay, you've convinced me on that front. Well, there's a question, Alan. That. I've asked everyone who's been on the podcast. And the question is, not accounting for your medical practice or any one thing, you know, your amazing career as a, as a semi-professional mountain unicyclist. <laughs> um, uh, it, it is, what are the top three recommendations you have for people who want to perform better, who, people who want to kick more ass, who just, you know, want to feel good and have that limitless power? What have you learned in your life that we should know? Probably the number one is just to be persistent with your health. You know, make it a priority and don't ever compromise on it. You know, don't ever assume that it can change. You know, our our bodies are this big collection of pieces that is in a constant state of flux and turnover. And there's just ridiculous amounts of of homeostasis and wisdom and capacity to repair that's going on 24-7. And if we have the right building blocks in place and if we have all the obstacles out of the way, it can do some pretty cool stuff. You know, and so often what happens is that we have decades and decades of, you know, not, not enough sleep, you know, not the right nutrients, too much waste in our body, unstable blood sugar, whatever these factors are, and we call that aging. 
you know, and, and there is a very real element of aging that, that we have probably yet can't shake completely, but so much of what we think of as aging is really not. It's stuff that is totally reversible. So yeah, my big takeaway is don't give up on your health if it's not where you don't want it to be and always expect that it can get better and it can improve. And the basic things really yield the biggest results. Good quality sleep, uh, healthy relationships, you know, great social connections, lots of vibrant living simple foods that men have had for long periods of time, you know, keeping your body low in chemicals. The simple stuff, it's not heroic efforts. It's really about just heroic consistency over long periods of time. That's one. <laughs> that was one. There was a couple inside of there. <laughs> I, would, I would add some element of hacking into it, about quantifying. And whatever it is you want to change, find some way to put metrics on that. You know, you really can improve what you can't measure. Find, find some way to quantify and score and track. And create a good team for yourself. That was number two. <laughs> there you go. Number three, create a good team for yourself. You know, find some great resources, podcasts like this. Find good books out there, find, find professionals, you know, find associated friends, and really share best practices and really collaborate and help raise the bar for one another. So yeah, seek out data, keep seeking out data. And you know, there's certain things that we focus our time on that are quite unimportant. You know, we look at the lives of the celebrities or whatnot. And for sure, you know, your physical health, how you're performing in the world, deserves a certain amount of that horsepower and that attention. So make it, make it a bit of a, an obsession, a priority, or a focus for yourself, and it'll yield you so much positive outcome in your life. Great advice, Alan. I appreciate you sharing it. Where can people learn more about your practice uh, and your books? Uh, integrativehealthcare.com, data about the practice. My books are on Amazon or anywhere books can be sold, both of the thyroid books. Yeah, so easy to find. Great. I will put links to your books on the show notes as well when we post it so people can find them. Alan, it's been a pleasure. I learned something every time I talk on one of these podcasts with an expert in the field, but I did not expect to learn about compounding pharmacy stuff from you. So thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> All right. Next time we talk, I'll call you in about a year. I fully expect to see juggling. Juggling. I'll put it on the list. I'll fully expect to see unicycling. <laughs> I'll All right, totally you win. Tips on that. <laughs> Have an awesome day. Thank you. you. You too, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.